on the first day of this session, of this retreat, I'd like to speak to you about something that we call tam or tama. Tama. I'll speak about it in different aspects and from different points of view because I think that this is something that you don't understand very well. We should begin with the question of, in coming to this retreat, in coming to this period of training, what ought you to receive? What are you going to receive? The answer to that question is tama. When we speak like this, you'll probably be a bit confused since you don't know what we're talking about when we use this word tama. So before we go any further, we're going to have to talk about the meaning of this word tama. And in doing so, if we can help you to understand what tama is, then you will receive tama through that understanding. And that ought to justify your coming here. Some people, when they hear us talking about tama or dhamma, they make a distinction between tama and meditation. They separate tama and meditation into two different things and think that these two things have nothing to do with each other. Well, let's get things straight from the beginning so that you have the correct understanding that tama and meditation are the same thing. Meditation practice is a way of, of helping us to have tama, to receive tama. So in no way can we separate tama and meditation practice into two distinct things. They're one and the same thing. Please understand this. Another question is, at what point or at what time is our humanity full, complete, and perfect? What does it take to be perfectly, completely human? The answer to this question is when we receive Dhamma, when we have Dhamma, then we are complete, full, perfect human beings. We also need to understand what, what the meaning of humanity or what the meaning of being a human being is. For many of us, we confuse these two things and think that, or we confuse two things into one category because we haven't really looked at and considered and examined what it means to be a human being 
We often think that there is no difference between being a sentient being and being a human being. And when we don't understand the distinction between the two, then it is very, very difficult to be a human being. So we need to examine these and understand the difference between being a sentient being and a human being. When we realize the difference between sentient being and human being, then it will be quite easy to see that tama is the thing that makes the difference, that will help a sentient being to become a human being. When we use these words sentient being and human being, which is not, not my native language, it may be a little bit unclear for you because in the Thai language we use two words, kon for sentient being and manut for human being. And in these two words there is a very clear and distinct difference. But this may not be conveyed by the English words sentient being and human being. Therefore, we will try to help you to see this difference the, we are born as sentient beings and through realizing and understanding Dhamma we become human beings. We're not exactly sure what you understand the word human being to mean. And so what we're, the point we're trying to make right now may not yet be completely clear. We know what this Thai word means, the Thai word manut. And as far as we can tell, in English, the closest equivalent is human being. But we're not exactly sure what that word human being means. So let us talk about the Thai word manut. The word manut comes from a Pali word, manut saya, and this word means having a mind, having a high mind, or a mind or consciousness on a high level. When we use the word kon, or sentient being, we're talking about a mind on ordinary levels, on common levels of consciousness. Sometimes it's on the very, the most common level of the instincts. But when we talk about kon or sentient beings, we're talking about ordinary states of mind. But when we talk about manut or human beings or human being, then we're talking about high levels of mind and of consciousness. So if the word human being or manut means being on a living with a high state of mind, 
we need to talk about what we mean by the word high. This word, by this mean, by high, we mean on top of or above. And we're, this means a mind that is above problems, above the, the pain, the suffering, the conflict, the dissatisfaction of ordinary life or of common life. When the mind is on a common level, it is caught up in all the problems, pains, suffering, conflict, and all those kind of things of common life. So to be a, a human being, we mean to have a mind that is above all that conflict and pain and all those problems. So you need to consider the difference between the commonness of being a sentient being and the, the higher level of a human being. You need to consider and examine this difference until you see the importance of being a human being, until you're willing to really work and do what it takes to be a human being. This involves looking at sentient being and seeing that this level of mind, these lower states of mind, are constantly mixed up and intertwined with what we call tukka. When the mind is on a low level, it's always being disturbed, agitated, bothered by tukka. Tukka is something that prevents the mind from ever being truly calm, peaceful, and clear. So when the mind is on common levels, it is always forced to struggle and fight with this problem of tukka. And in this way, there can be no peace for the ordinary sentient being. But for the human being with a mind that is on a high level, it is above these problems of tukka, of all the strife, the agitation and pain. This kind of mind no longer has to struggle. It is no longer forced to fight with this problem of tukka. It is free and above those problems. And in this way it finds peace. We need to see this difference in order to understand what this life is about. It seems that there's a common problem which we need to address. And this is that many, many of you don't know what, the, what dukkha is. You don't know what tukkha is. In fact, we hear that there are many people who think or claim that they have no tukkha. So let's explain this a bit in order to be very clear on this important point. Tukkha is a word that is very, very difficult to translate into English. 
so we're not going to translate it, but we'll try to explain it a bit. Tuka, we can say, is that which is hard to endure, difficult to stand, to bear, to put up with. Tuka is whatever the very many things that happen through life that are difficult to live with, sometimes so strong that they are unbearable, sometimes weaker that we would say they are annoying or disturbing. But they are all the various things that are difficult to live with, to endure, to bear. And so we struggle with them. We have to solve them in one way or another to become free of these things we call tukka. Now many people have a very shallow understanding of tukka and they only think in materialistic, physical kinds of tukka, such as a stomach ache or sore knees or back aches. They can only think of physical pains and aches as tukka. But this tukka that is so difficult to endure also affects the mind. It's not just something that happens to the body. And when we see tukka as something that affects the mind, that involves the mind, then we can also talk about tukka is that which is, and I have trouble translating this Thai word correctly, but we can say tukka is what is disgusting or ugly, hateful, loathsome. Tukka is this thing that is happening in life that makes us, that revolts us, that disgusts us, very ugly and hateful. So we need to understand this thing, tukka, and look at our lives and see if there is any tukka. Are there, is there anything in life that is difficult to endure? Is there anything that is hateful, ugly? Because if, if in your life you find no tukka, if your life is free of tukka, then it's, you don't need to study the Dhamma. The Dhamma, the Tama, is for the, is what helps us to deal with tukka. If you have no tukka, it's a waste of your time to study the Dhamma, the Tama. So take a look and identify any tukka that may exist in your life. We'd like to examine this in more, in finer, more subtle detail in order to make sure that you understand what we mean by tukka. This may be more than is necessary for some of you, but we need to make these distinctions in order that you truly understand. In happiness, in the pleasant situations, 
where we're getting the things we want and we're indulging in some pleasure. This thing we call happiness, which we attach so much value to. In that happiness, there is tukkah. Can you see this point? Can you see that in happiness, there is tukkah? In that enjoyment, in that indulgence and pleasantness, can you see that there is the problem of having to preserve that happiness? All mixed up with what we think is that great pleasure is also the necessity to struggle and fight in order to preserve that happiness, to hang on to it. This, this is to show that even in happiness, which we attach so much importance to, that there is tukkah, that there is always this problem of tukkah, even in something like happiness. If not actual physical pain, then the characteristic of tukkah. So we want you to see this point. Many people don't, can't realize this. This is too difficult for many people to understand. But to have a full understanding of tukkah, it is necessary to see that there is tukkah in happiness. In Buddhism and in the teachings of the Buddha, you will not find when you will find you will not find much talk of happiness. When the Buddha is speaking in the language of ultimate reality, in what we call the Dhamma language, when he has left aside the the common conventional terminology that most people use, and when he is speaking about ultimate truth, then the Buddha doesn't talk about happiness. When the Buddha is speaking about the way things really are, he only speaks about tukkha and the end of tukkha, or the extinction of tukkha. He doesn't spend any time talking, he doesn't in these cases, he doesn't talk about happiness because happiness always has tukkah within it. So there's no real such, there's no such real thing as happiness when we understand things on a deep level. So the Buddha doesn't talk about it. In the West, there were the, the hippies who were looking for all, various kinds of happiness. They could never find it. Because for them, happiness was what was just, was always the opposite of the things they disliked. They're always looking for kind of happinesses which were based on, on judgments, and based on distinctions regarding what they, what they didn't like. And this kind of happiness is something that always must be struggled for. 
If we get a little bit of it, we have to be very careful to protect it, preserve it, care for it. And so all these kinds of happiness are dukkha. So we don't really need to talk about happiness. To really talk about the way things work, we talk about dukkha and the extinction of dukkha. Now, we have to admit that if you read through the Buddhist scriptures, you'll see that the Buddha did talk about happiness at times. But when he was doing so, he wasn't speaking in, he wasn't really speaking in terms of relative, of, excuse me, of ultimate truth. When the Buddha spoke of happiness, he was speaking on a common, ordinary, everyday level that common, ordinary minds could understand. Most people don't have enough insight into themselves or life to understand what tukka means. And for these people, we have to talk about happiness. So this, the talk, there is talk of happiness in Buddhism when the Buddha was talking to people who didn't really understand the importance of tukkha. So he would use, he would speak about happiness saying things like Nibbana or Nirvana. He would say Nibbana is the supreme happiness. This was just a little bit of propaganda to help people who didn't have very profound understanding to be interested in the teachings, to get them started so that they could move on to more important and more fundamental truths. So all the talk of happiness are just carrots to get people started into the practice. But once we get in, begin to practice, once we truly begin to meditate and use dhamma, use tama in our lives, then we no longer have to speak in terms of happiness. Instead, we speak about tukkha and the end of tukkha, or void, the voidness of tukkha. So the practice of tama is not for happiness. The goal of this practice is to be void of tukkha, to be free of tukkha. This is what this practice is about. If you under, begin to understand tama and are practicing correctly, then the results of the practice will be the end of tukkha. For those of you who understand the way things work, understand yourselves in life, then this will be sufficient. All this talk about happiness will no longer interest you. So this is why Buddhism and the Tama is about tukkha and void of tukkha, 
freedom from tukkah. So in, in order to summarize what we've said so far, let me point out that for most people, for common, ordinary people, if you ask them what they want, they say they want happiness. This is for people who are still thinking in ordinary, common ways. They don't have much understanding of tama. But for those of us who are beginning to see tama and understand it, and when we speak in the language of tama instead of in ordinary, everyday, mixed-up ways, then we no longer speak about happiness. When there's understanding of tama and we use a language appropriate to that understanding, then we talk about being void of tukkah. So people who understand tama say, they do not say, I want to be happy. They say, I want the state that is void of dukkha. I want to be free of tukkha. This is the goal of people who understand tama. They're no longer interested in being happy. That is no longer their goal. So we wanted to summarize this clearly for you. The difference between the, the wants and desires of common people and the goal of those who understand tama. We wanted to point this out to you that you're, you will have the correct goal in coming to Suanmok and this retreat and practicing meditation to be free, to be void of tukkah. So now let's talk about mental training or mental development, which we often use the word meditation for. The goal and the reason for meditating, for practicing mental training and mental development, is to be, is to have a mind that is void of dukkha. It's for this freedom of tukkha. This is the reason for meditating. To practice mental development in order to be happy is to immediately be stupid. This is very foolish to have the goal of happiness because as soon as you have this goal of happiness, then you indulge in it, you get wrapped up in it, and you struggle and fight in order to be happy. And so you no longer have a meditation practice, but you just have a struggle in order to be happy. And there is no peace and calm and clarity in that struggling to be happy. So it is much wiser in one's meditation, in one's practice of mental development, to, to have the aim of being free of tukkha. We no longer wish to be happy. 
we simply wish to be free of tukkha. And in this way, the mental development can continue calmly and peacefully, not as a struggle, but as a development of a peaceful, clear, wise mind. In this way, with this simple wish, the wish to be void of tukkha, the mind can raise above its problems. To want to be happy is just to stay wrapped up in all the problems of common worldly life. But to have the, the wish to be free of tukkha gives us the possibility of raising the mind above all those problems and struggles and turmoils. And that, that mind is the human mind, the truly human mind that is above, that is high above all problems. So we want you to see how tama and the goal of tama, which is to be free of tukkha, we want you to see how this is related to meditation practice, to mental development, so that you have the wise wish in your meditation practice to be free of tukkha, and so you don't confuse yourselves with, with foolish indulgence and searching and struggling for mere happiness. There's one more word that you would do very well to understand. This word is sangop, which I will translate calmness or tranquility. The Pali word is santi, santi. And there's a very similar Sanskrit word, shanti. This word can also be translated peace. So peace, calm, tranquility, quiet. is what we're talking about, santi. You need to understand the proper meaning of this. And so all of these words I've used so far don't quite com convey the proper meaning. So you need to get beyond these words to, to what we mean when we use the Pali word santi. We can put it in a context using some other Pali words, nirota, which means cessation or extinction, ending. And nibbana, Nibbana, which means coolness. <laughs> and we can use <clears throat> patsetti, which means tranquility. So when we talk about santi, or calmness, peace, tranquility, understand it in the sense that is cool, also cool, and is a cessation and an extinction. Try to understand this word, santi. Happiness, or santi, 
is no is neither happy nor tukha. In tukha or in happiness, there's always some agitation. In fact, the more satisfied we are with the happiness, the more agitating it gets. The more we attach to it, the more we indulge in happiness, the less and less it is santi. So santi is neither happiness nor tukha. Santi is when there is freedom from tukha. So it is neither of these extremes of happiness and tukha. Santi is neither positive nor negative. It's not pessimistic or optimistic. It's a kind it's a calmness and peace that is free of all these dualities. All these things which disturb and agitate the mind. So try and understand what we mean by santi. Explore what this is. And then you'll you'll understand what meditation practice is about. The world today, most of us are all wrapped up in positiveness. We've, we're addicted to the heroin of positiveness. Whatever is positive, we're always going around being positive, trying to be positive looking for positive things, running away from the negative, criticizing people who are negative. We're always we're addicted to the heroin of the positive. But this addiction is not it's not peaceful, it's not calm, it's not santi. It disturbs the mind just as much as tukka does. Because in this addiction to positiveness, there is still the struggle and the problems of how to get it, preserve it, maintain it. And so this, this obsession with the positive is not the answer. We need to go beyond what is positive to what is peaceful. Positive and negative are not peaceful. True peace and calm is beyond and above the positive. It's, it's beyond and free from the distinctions of pessimism and optimism of these these ways of judging things that we all have. So in, in this practice, we're working for santi, which is above happiness, beyond the positive, and is really free, really liberated, and in that is calm and peace. 
will summarize this in a very short way that will be easy for you to remember. The heroine of positiveness is much stronger, fiercer, and more dangerous than the drug heroine, which is such a problem in the world today. The heroine of positiveness is fiercer and more dangerous, causes more problems than the drug heroine. If you understand this, it will help you very, very much in your practice of tama and in your, it will help you in your meditation. We can compare these to make it a little easier to understand. When we're addicted to heroin, to the drug, it is very, very difficult to give up that addiction. This is something well known to us all. We either know people who've been addicted to heroin or we've been bombarded with information about it over the last 15, 20 years. But no matter how difficult it is to give up the physical addiction or the addiction to the physical drug of heroin, it is even more difficult far more difficult to give up our addiction to the heroin of positiveness. This attachment we have to positive things, to pleasant things, this attachment is much more stronger and deep-rooted than any addiction to, to heroin or other drugs. So what we have to do in our practice, what we have to work on, is giving up this, this very powerful addiction we have to positive things. This is the hardest thing there is to do. It's the most difficult thing there is to do. But this is the only way there is to, to peace to santi, to calmness. Put it in short and direct terms. The hippies, the hippie movement was completely unsuccessful in getting what they were after, in finding what they were looking for, because they don't know the meaning or they didn't know the meaning of calmness, of peace. The hippies were unsuccessful in achieving their goals because they didn't understand the meaning of peace, of calmness. So we're talking about this, this thing and we're having trouble finding an English word for it. So you can find that word on your own or find it in Japanese, Hebrew, German, whatever your native language is. We're talking about in Thai, sangop, 
or Santi in Pali, Shanti in Sans Sanskrit. Maybe we could call it in English spiritual tranquility. It has a deeper, a deeper meaning than peace. The word peace and calmness for many people is not at all peaceful, not at all calm. So get beyond the common understandings of these words and find, find a word that truly describes what we're talking about and then use that word very skillfully. Hold on to it and use it so that you have a, a standard within your practice, you ha so you have a guide in your practice. So spiritual tranquility or something like that, whatever ex describes it for you, you must find this and use it in order to become a human being a human being of, that is above and free of both tukka and happiness. So the reason that we, we practice meditation, the reason we practice mental development or vipassana, insight practice, is in order to understand the meaning of santi, of spiritual tranquility, of calmness, of spiritual peace. Meditation is to understand this. Once we begin to understand it through meditation, we realize that we're unable to, to bring the mind to a state of spiritual tranquility. The mind just isn't able to do it. So then we use meditation to train the mind so that the mind is able to enter into and maintain itself in spiritual tranquility. So this is what meditation practice is about. This is what you've, many of you have heard the word vipassana. This is what vipassana is for. Vipassana is to understand, to understand the truth of spiritual calmness and peace and then to train and develop the mind so that it can dwell in santi. This is what the meditation practice is for. Another word related to this subject that we'd like you to understand is samati pavana samati ba or you heard it pronounced yesterday bhavana one is a western pronunciation one a thai pronunciation samati pavana pavana means development as was explained yesterday Samati is concentration. So samati pavana is development of the mind through concentration, 
development of the mind using concentration. This is samati pavana. You have to you have to understand this properly. Samati is the tool. It's the method. It's a means of developing the mind. It's not the goal. It's the means. Through the concentration practice, the development of concentration, the mind is developed. So samati pavana is very crucial and necessary in what we call vipassana, in insight, as was just talked about. Samati provides a strength and power and force for the mind to develop itself. So this is a very necessary tool in the meditation practice. So please remember the words samati pavana and grow in your understanding of them. Nowadays we use many different words for what we're talking about. Not only the English translations, but people are using all kinds of different Pali words. But if we go back to the, the original scriptures and see what words the Buddha used, he only used the words samati pavana, development of the mind through the power of concentration. This is what the Buddha used. But nowadays there are different teachers with their meditation centers and places using different words, such as vipassana. The Buddha didn't use, the, use this word in that way. Or gamatana, to make gamatan, is a way it's often talked about in Thailand. But this isn't the way the Buddha spoke. If we want to go back to the true original meaning and understanding, then we might as well use the most correct words. If other people in other places want to use other words, that's okay. And we can listen to what they're talking about and make sense of it. But to go back to the original teaching and use the original word which was perfectly clear and fine in the first place, is what we prefer to do. So we'll talk about samati pavana, development of the mind through the power of concentration. This is the most appropriate way to describe what we're talking about. When we talk about samati, vipats, samati pavana, it includes vipassana, Development of the mind through the power of concentration has within it insight, the development of insight. It also includes what we sometimes hear samatha and samadhi, tranquility meditation or calmness practices. These are all included within the, the words samati, pavana. So it's best to go back to these original words, understand their meaning, and use them properly. 
because it includes all these these other words that are being used in different places. So samati pavana is a practice that through which the de- the mind can be developed and liberated from tuka. So we only have to use these these two simple words samati pavana. And if we use them we'll see the importance of developing what we call samati. Without samadhi, the mind has no strength, clarity, and calm with which to really understand anything. So when we use the word samati pavana, then we can never forget the importance of samadhi. And so the practice we do here of anapanasati or mindfulness of breathing develops the necessary samadhi and so we call it samati pavana and we use a technique the technique of mindfulness of breathing in order to develop the samadhi that is absolutely necessary for mental development. Now different places, different teachers can use whatever words they they find appropriate. But when you come to Suan Mok, we're going to ask you, why did you come here? Why are you here? What do you want? The most appropriate answer to that question, and you can see if it's your answer, is to train in samati pavana, to practice and train in samati pavana. This is the most appropriate reason for coming to Suan Mok. In fact, no matter what center or monastery you go to, in whatever part of Thailand, whatever country in Asia, Europe, or the world, wherever place you go, the most appropriate reason, the best reason for being there is to train and practice in Samati Pawana. So, we use the word samati pavana just as the Buddha used. We use the same terms that appear in the original scriptures. So if we're going to use the term samati pavana, we need to understand it. And so now we'll talk in some detail about samati. Thai pronunciation is samati and Often you'll hear foreigners pronounce it samadhi. So, same word. Samadhi is something that all of us have. It's a skill or ability of the mind of all, all sentient beings. All animals and creatures have the instinct of samadhi. Samadhi 
is an instinctual ability that is used throughout nature by all living, all living creatures. In the practice of mindfulness or breathing, or in samati pavana in general, this natural instinct, instinctual samadhi is developed to much higher levels so that it becomes a truly powerful tool to be used. Instinctual samadhi or instinctual concentration is present in all of us from birth. This is why we call it an instinct. It arises by itself without having to be educated or trained. So samadhi is, in, is present in all animals, including Homo sapiens. We can see this in many different examples. In the ability of a bird to fly, that takes concentration on the bird's part. The ability of a cat to catch a mouse takes concentration. Or for children to play games, to toss stones or shoot rubber bands, this takes samadhi. Or when we eat, to get the spoon into our mouth instead of up our nose, takes samadhi. Whatever kind of work we do takes samadhi. But all these worldly kind of activities we are perfectly able to do with instinctual samadhi. For most of the things we need to do for physical survival, we can do it using instinctual samadhi. But here we come to develop and train samadhi so that it is far stronger, more skillful and powerful than the instinctual level. We use various techniques, especially mindfulness of breathing, to do so. And as samadhi is developed and strengthened, it brings many, many benefits both spiritual and worldly. Whatever our work is, say we're a typist and we have to type, with, with stronger samadhi, we are much more skillful typists. Or whatever our sports we like to play, we can play badminton or kick a football or swim or windsurf, whatever it is with more skillfulness when there is samadhi. Whatever our work is, whatever activities we do, whether for physical survival or play, these are done more skillfully with fewer errors through the strength and power of samadhi. But this isn't why we're practicing meditation. We continue to develop it in order to use it to do our spiritual work, which is to 
see and realize Tama. And so we take this original instinctual samadhi that is present in all of us and we develop it, we train it. It brings great many benefits in our worldly lives. But primarily, it reaps the most lasting and important benefits in our spiritual lives, in the understanding of Tama. So what we've said so far should make it obvious to each of you how important and valuable a tool Samadhi is. And so we'll be developing it here and you'll understand the importance of what we're doing and you'll understand the reasons for why we're doing these practices. As you engage in them, as you do them, as samadhi develops, then it will <clears throat> bring the benefits that we have been talking about. You will understand the instinctual kind of samadhi. You'll be able to use samadhi to benefit you in your worldly duties and tasks. And then you will see the results and benefits it will bring in spiritual life. So we're going to summarize this in a very clear way that will be easy for you to remember and use. This applies to both instinctual samadhi, samadhi that is applied to worldly duties and work, and then samadhi in our spiritual practice. These three kinds of samadhi can be explained in the same way. Samadhi is the intention of the mind that is aimed at a final goal. It's the gathering together of the mind and aiming it at one final goal. This state of being, this condition, is called samadhi. Samadhi is the state or condition where the mind has the intention and objective to drive forward after one single goal, after the final goal. So this definition of the state or condition of being that aims at a final goal. This definition of samadhi is appropriate for all levels and kinds of samadhi. When a bird is flying, it has the instinctual kind of samadhi where it is aiming at flying somewhere. When a person works, 
then in that worldly task, they have samadhi at the result for which they are working. Whether it's a farmer planting for the harvest or a bureaucrat filling out forms for his monthly paycheck. And then in spiritual practice, there is samadhi towards a final goal, the goal of santi, of spiritual tranquility, spiritual calm and peace. So whatever the kind of activity, for it to be of any success, there must be samadhi. And the stronger and more complete the samadhi, the better the odds of success. Now when we talk about the third kind of samadhi, the samadhi that has spiritual tranquility as its goal, we can use the highest and most complete definition of samadhi which the Buddha used. The Buddha said that samadhi is the one-pointed mind, the one-pointed mind that has Nibbana as its object. Samadhi is when the mind has only one thing in sight. The mind is completely focused on only one thing. And that thing, that object of the mind's focus is Nibbana. Nibbana is the final goal, the coolness, the extinction of all tukkha. It's complete freedom and liberation. So true spiritual samadhi is when the one-pointed mind takes Nibbana as its goal. The mind sees only one thing, and that thing is Nibbana. That's all the mind is interested in. This is the highest, most powerful kind of samadhi. So this definition which we've used is the most complete and perfect definition of samadhi. The one-pointedness of mind which has Nibbana as its final goal. The one-pointedness of mind that has Nibbana as its final goal. This can cover all the different instances of samadhi. Even when we begin our meditation practice in the very, very early stages, we were just sitting quietly, being mindful of the breathing. This is a samadhi. The mind is becoming one-pointed on the breathing. And in doing so, there is calmness and peace. So even in this, even in this short-term goal, 
of being mindful of the breath, of the long breathing and the short breathing, and of calming the mind in this way. Even in this shorter goal, there is movement towards the final goal of Nibbana. So throughout the meditation practice, with the smaller, earlier levels of samadhi, and then through the developing, strengthening levels of samadhi, there is always Nibbana as the goal. The samadhi that is developing should always be aimed at Nibbana, the one-pointedness of mind must, must always be aiming towards Nibbana for there to be spiritual development. This includes all the worldly tasks in our lives as well. If we do those tasks with a mind that has one-pointedness, then that mind uses the one-pointedness to move towards that goal. And the goals of all these different activities are directed towards the final goal of Nibbana. So thus samadhi, the mind, the one-pointedness of mind that has Nibbana as its goal, is something used in all the activities of life, especially in the meditation practice, but in all the activities, whether brushing our teeth, eating, carrying water, going to the, to the toilet, or going to sleep at night. If we understand this, then there will definitely be movement and progress towards our final goal of santi, of spiritual tranquility. So please understand this definition of samadhi. Remember that we are practicing Samadhi Pawana. Remember this and use it in each moment of your meditation practice. There only remains for us to explain the three characteristics of Samadhi. Excuse me, there are three characteristics of the mind that has Samadhi or the mind that is samadhi. And you would do very well to remember these three characteristics. First characteristic is purity. The mind that has samadhi, that has the characteristic of purity. The second characteristic is stability, stability or stableness. And the third characteristic is activeness, activeness. So please remember these three words. The three characteristics of a mind that has samadhi are purity, stability, and activeness.
Please remember them. So you can think about what use, what benefits this sort of mind would have. You can think about how a mind that has samadhi, a mind with the characteristics of purity, stability, and activeness, you can see of what use this would be in all the activities of your life, whether they are worldly tasks or your spiritual duties. You can see of what benefit this kind of mind would be, of how much more useful a mind is when it has the characteristics of purity, stability, and activeness than a mind that lacks them. A mind lacking in purity, stability, and activeness is not very capable of doing things well. So this we can begin to see the value of a mind that has samadhi that has these three characteristics, especially in spiritual practice, especially in practice of dhamma, of tama, of the realization, understanding, and application of truth, the truth of nature, the way things work. In doing so, in using samadhi in this way, in using the mind that has samadhi, in this way, then there is true spiritual, de- there's true development. So this is why we're using the, the term samati pavana, the development of the mind through the means of samati, through the power of samati. Through this development, there is true progress towards the final goal. This is the way towards being fully human. To be human means a being on a high level of consciousness. So through samadhi, this can be developed and reached. To reach a state of mind that is above all problems, that is void of tukkha, This is the importance and benefit of samadhi. So please remember through the rest of your life the meaning of samadhi pavana and use it. So samadhi pavana is what we've been talking about, what it means what use it has, what its benefits are. We've been talking about this so that you will clearly understand what you are here for. So you'll understand what this is about. Samati Pawana is development of the mind using with Samati as the means development of the mind using the power of samadhi. So we're training the mind to be on a high level, to be above problems and tukka, to be truly and fully human. 
This is what samati pavana is about. If you've been listening carefully and if you've been understanding what has been said, then you will surely be interested in practicing samati pavana. You'll, you'll definitely want to train the mind in this way. In order to live a life that is, isn't lost in daydreams and nightmares and blindly wandering through, through the world without direction. With Samati Pawana, there is the goal of spiritual tranquility, of spiritual peace. And there is this ability to train the mind in this way, to raise it to higher levels, until the level of true and complete spiritual tranquility is reached, when there is this perfection of humanity, then the mind continues in this way up until death. So there is samati pavana up until the realization of spiritual tranquility. And then the mind dwells and abides in spiritual tranquility up until death. If you've been listening and understanding, then you'll know what you are here for. This will all make sense and will be something, will be a goal with which you can be most content. So we've tried to explain what samati is, what samati pavana is, to show its importance and its relevance to you in your lives, in your daily lives, both here at Suanmok and wherever you'll be going after Suanmok. We've tried to do this. Now it's up to you to use it, to make the understanding of it appear in your minds. So we wish you success in your goals. We hope that you achieve what you want to achieve here at Suan Mok and in life. We wish you success and on this point we close today's meeting. <laughs>